Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Iga and Carlos Tennis Show. Uh, this is your host, Vonch, of course, and I'm alongside a man who needs no introduction at this point because he's he's my co-host, and that's Damien. Damien, how are you? Uh, hey, guys. I mean, as I said last time, I think basically every week we're breaking new ground here. This is our first episode in the middle of the slam. Uh, initially, we actually were hoping to do it like after the forefront, after the first week, maybe. Um, eventually, we're here, but I think this is still fine. We're going to have a lot to cover today and also a lot to cover after the slam has ended. Because as you probably know by now, Iga Świątek and Carlos Alcaraz have both made it to the semis. And basically, it couldn't really have been any easier for them. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, let, let's get into that actually right away. I mean, let's start actually with Alcaraz because obviously the whole world knows it. Everyone knows it. Uh, any Anyone who's been following tennis basically for the last one year knows that everything has been basically building up to this point, you know. The the climax is huge, I guess. The the hype, the the buzz around this matchup is huge and it rightfully should be. I mean, this is, a, this is one of those matches that we've just we've not gotten to see for over a year for various different reasons it'd be Djokovic's vaccination status along with Alcaraz missing some tournaments like the Australian Open Monte Carlo this year injuries stuff like that and they've just never been in the same draw up until I want to say up until this year um Rome was it the first time they were in a draw uh since since last year all the way back in Paris Masters and Wimbledon before that so I think um yeah this this was definitely building to that point it's we're gonna get it now in the semis uh, and you know we probably would have gotten it in the final, but uh, but Daniel Medvedev of course had other ideas, won Rome, and was the number two seed, and so but nonetheless here we have it. You know Friday it's going to be a blockbuster match. Let's get into it. So obviously we have Alcaraz, you know three very impressive matches against one-handed backhands, um, and he has a very good record against all these one-handers. Basically only just that one loss at ATP level to Busetti in the final of Hamburg, and you know we saw how how easily and how Efficiently, he was able to beat these guys this time around in Shapovalov and Musetti, and especially the match against Tsitsipas. I guess what are your sort of main takeaways of of Carlos's efficiency, his uh, his performance in in those three matches? And yeah, I mean, just take it however you you want. I guess. Yeah, I mean, all the time, I guess we are just sort of waiting for someone to trouble him. Uh, no one really took Taro Daniel seriously. I think in the second round, even though he took a set. And no, you know, that all due respect to Taro, I mean, uh, people who know me, they, they, they know that I respect this guy so much. But at the same time, um, you know, that, that wasn't really a close match, even was even though it was in four sets. And then everyone was looking, you know, Shapovalov has woken up. He's that sort of player who can just redline his game, come out and you know, just be incredible. Uh, nothing happens in that match. Musetti, it seemed like it, that has to be the first test, right? I mean, the, the 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 first week from Musetti was what the best he's ever played, close to it. I, I would I would be willing to agree to this. And yet, nothing happens in this match. Then Tsitsipas, of course, someone who has historically struggled so much with Alcaraz, but at the same time, we haven't really seen him so hopeless against him. And uh, yet, yeah, somehow again, it's just so easy. Uh, of course, there was that first set fight back, kind of irrelevant at the end, uh, maybe not irrelevant for Tsitsipas, but I think from Alcaraz's perspective, it's somewhat irrelevant that, um, you know, he, he just got a little loose and, and he led him back into it. Of course, it didn't really end up mattering. Still, it was pretty close. You know, Tsitsipas was like two points away from, from winning the set or something. Um, so uh, basically, the way I'm looking at this is that this has been a pretty ridiculous display of strength. Sometimes we are talking about the players like, um, you know, maybe having a tough match during their campaign is going to help them. Um, so far, Alcaraz hasn't really had that. Does it mean that he will come undercooked against Djokovic? I don't really think so, but I guess it's just barely, like basically a subjective feeling. Before the before Ron Garros, I've heard a lot of comments about like Alcaraz not really um, like not really beating top five players on slow clay in the past, which for me was not not really an argument. Although it kind of is true, like he hasn't had that many big wins. It's mostly because he didn't play Rome last year, right? And it's mostly because he lost to Zverev at Ron Garros. Um, again, this year in Rome, he lost early, so he also did not get a ch get a chance to uh, play against such players. Barcelona, of course, you can you can probably um, say that he did it there against Tsitsipas at, at, at least, and basically only against Tsitsipas. 
Uh, but yeah, I just always figured that this isn't really a um, point worth focusing on. Like, this is just something that hasn't happened because of just some external reasons. It's not something that hasn't happened because he cannot do it, um, which I also felt was pretty obvious. But um, I, I've seen comments like this. Well, and um, over the course of the five matches that he played at Rangaros, there was basically nothing that I think we really learned, nothing that we really um, found out about him. Definitely the, the, the matchup against Tsitsipas is just such a nightmare for the Greek. I kind of wonder if he's ever going to beat him. <laughs> I mean, may, maybe he's going to beat him on some um, faster court somewhere. Of course, there was a very close yeah. match they played in at the US Open, but, um, you know, Carlos was still in diapers back then. Uh, but, but still, <laughs> like, you, you kind of got to wonder at this point whether maybe that um, chance for Tsitsipas to like get a grand slam, etc. It kind of has gone because, you know, he, he's not beating Alcaraz in most slams from now on. He's probably not beating Runa as well. So so it was fairly easy for Alcaraz, but it's not like it was easy and everyone thought, you know, he has just a cakewalk. He didn't really. He had Musetti, he had Tsitsipas. Both uh, were in amazing disposition. So... Um, yeah, I think basically it couldn't really have gone any smoother. And um, yeah, he lost the set to Taro Daniel, but I think it's fair to say that he like mostly struggled with the win there and um, somehow, man, well, still pulled it off in four, of course. And yeah, the last three matches, I mean, there were just complete beatdowns, absolutely nothing happening in there. Um, I've said it, I think, a few times that like usually I don't enjoy matches like this, but there are certain players who I think still make it pretty entertaining. And I definitely like watching the Alcaraz beatdowns. He still some he still manages to captivate at the same time. Whereas there 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 have definitely been like top dominant players in the past who, if they were just too dominant, um, it kind of just turned my attention away from the screen. Uh, not necessarily yeah. the case with Alcaraz, although I mean, yeah, the tennis fan in me certainly would like the some of these at least to be more competitive along the way to the semis. Yeah, a lot to unpack. There's some good points. Um, and certainly, yeah, the, the last point about the entertainment value, I, it does not diminish. Even when he, you know, beats these players 2-3-3, three, and 1-2-2, three, two, one, two, and two, because there's just so much that he's doing, I guess, to expose the other guy's weaknesses, slight weaknesses, as long as, and also at the same time coming up with these ridiculous shots, kind of forcing the opponent to elevate. I mean, we saw, like, literally it got to a point yesterday where Sitsipas was down, you know, one six, two six, one four, and he wins this point. You know, great serve down the tee, and then doing what he normally does, which is an excellent serve plus one, and then coming forward behind it and looking to looking to attack, and then he finishes with a drop shot finish, and then all of a sudden, you know, he he celebrates and raises his arms up in the air, like you know, it's like almost like one of those like, hey, I didn't lose a game, you know, at least I'm I'm on the board here, like one of those kind of celebrations, which like you know, as a top five player and all that, I was thinking like wow, like that's, you know, that's that's what you have to do to win a point against this guy right now because that's that's sort of the level. It kind of summed up the, the match and kind of it just reminded me a lot of actually the fact that Tsitsipas was in this position himself, you know, three or four years ago. This is a guy who burst on the scene impressively beating all the big three, you know, before the age of 21 and beating Federer in Islam, you know, beating Djokovic twice by then and beating, beating Rafa on clay even after he got beat down by him. In the 2019 Australian Open semi-final, there's a lot of parallels with that match and this one as well. But you know, it, it was kind of kind of a strange feeling for me just watching that top five player be unable to sort of withstand anything that was being thrown at him and not really have any kind of strategy or tactic to combat it. Of course, we know about the the weaknesses with the with the backhand. I mean, we, we can call a spade a spade in terms of like it, it is a nightmare matchup for the Greek. Um, just because of, because of all the patterns. I mean, because what does he actually do to try to... What can he actually do to try to contract it? Because Alcaraz can just hurt him in so many ways. He has the backhand on the line firing, which, you know, in my opinion, I think is even better than it was last year. He's, I thought he was hitting that with so much more depth and just a lot cleaner in general. The forehand inside out is a, is a problem for Tsitsipas because he's he's camping in that corner and... Um, you know, he's just not getting, not able to hit that many forehands. And obviously the depth of, of Alcaraz's returns is a problem. And the drop shot obviously is a huge thing that uh, completely leaves Tsitsipas stranded behind the baseline because I've heard people say like, you know, he needs to develop a great slice and that would help him a lot in a lot of ma a lot of matches. And I definitely agree with that, of course. Like if you're a one-hander and you have those kind of weaknesses, a slice is huge. But in terms of the Alcaraz match specifically, 
I actually think the slice would slice would not work against Carlos at all. Like he's one of those players, almost like Rafa, where I just feel like the racket head speed is just way too good from a low contact point. And he is probably just gonna look to get many, many forehands after that. But in terms of Sitsipas, you know, being able to absorb pace better and defend, I definitely agree that it's it's important there. But in terms of actually like beating, you know, getting on the board, getting a win, or making these matches more competitive. Um, I'm not sure that that would be a, a sort of, particularly in just in this matchup alone, I don't think it would be hugely beneficial. I mean, just based on based on what he's been able to do with players who uh, who have size backhands. I think it would help to some extent. You know, he, he just doesn't really have a way of resetting the rallies from that wing. If like that slice was like exceptionally good, if it was like I don't know Dan Evans playing on the, uh, you know, if if Tsitsipas was just playing a tennis yeah. match and Dan Evans would just sub him, um, every single time he had to hit a slice backhand, I think it would actually work out pretty fine. Like if he just had any way of getting out of these patterns, you know, just getting maybe slicing it pretty low and deep to the uh, cross court and um, uh, to the Alcaraz backhand. And maybe that would somehow just uh, allow him to recover. At the same time, you know, Alcaraz is so fast as well. So basically anytime Tsitsipas tries to be um, aggressive himself, basically anytime he tries to really like start to start rushing him, he ends up just overhitting everything, shanking everything like he did it for like yeah. one hour in this final. So yeah, it, it is that was, really dire. that was a big part of it too. Anything short because Sitsipas did have chances. You know, he did have chances to attack, to finish, uh, yeah. to you know hit forehands in the open court. And I mean, not only does Alcaraz have the speed to get back Sitsipas's wide serves, but he's also able to then hit the runaround forehand from <laughs> when Sitsipas has a forehand in the middle of the court. I mean, that, for most players, that's death when Sitsipas has a forehand, you know, short inside the service yeah. box after the serve, but somehow Akaraz is able to track that ball down and throw up another lob after that, or just defend like crazy. And in one case, he even, he literally was falling to his left and he managed to hit a 115 mile per hour forehand inside out winner. I mean, that just, I, I still don't know how he hit that shot. Like I'm, you know, I'm picturing that right now. <laughs> As we're talking, I'm just like, I'm stunned. I don't know how it's even possible to to hit a shot like that. I mean, it, obviously he has the scoreboard, everything working in his favor, but my God, like, I I don't know if there's any other player I can I can ever recall that's Yeah, that. I, I used to say that Ernest, Ernesto Escobedo has the best forehand running back oh, like God. falling backwards on the tour. I think Alcaraz might be better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean and then you know I was trying to think like what can Sitsipas actually do with his current game? And all I could come up with is just red line on his first serve, make like 90% first serves in. And just go all out on his forehand inside in and try to rush Carlos with that and come forward. And it's so difficult. But I I also just, you know, there's just one one thing though is that Carlos did allow Sitsipas to get back into this match, right? Five three. He felt that he felt the nerves. It was kind of understandable in a way because he was playing. I mean, he said on court that six up until six one, six two, five, or six two, six one, five two. It was the best match he's ever played. That's what he said. So you know, at, at some point he had to get human and the level had to drop, I think. And at 5-3, he just he played a he played a bit of a sloppy game. And Sitsipas started, you know, it, it helped that Sitsipas save those match points the game before. And he to his credit, he did get something actually going and made a managed to make a match out of it in terms of, you know, if it, it had it had been six two, six one, six two, you know, that would have been quite an embarrassing scoreline for a for for the top five player, but I think actually Tsitsipas did well to salvage himself a little bit, get into a tie break, make the tie break somewhat close at the end too. But it just it was all always inevitable that you know it was it was going to be an Alcaraz victory, and I guess uh, you know does it concern you at all that he had that little, little dip? Because for me, I actually think it could sharpen him a lot. You know, getting into that in, into the Djokovic match, just having dealing with that adversity of not closing out the match the first time, and then you know playing a Playing a good tiebreak tactically, the you know the match point was pretty sound. Um, so, like, does that yeah. concern you going in, or is that could that maybe be seen as a positive? I've talked about it with a few people, and I, like I've heard them saying that you know Djokovic wouldn't really have let this opportunity slip; like he would have closed it out in three. Do we really know that? I don't know. It's not like Djokovic. I mean, I, I know he's only lost three matches where he's ever had uh, match points. 
But anyway, like I, I don't think we actually know that he wouldn't have, you know, just what does it even mean led back into the match? You know, he still won the set. So from Alcaraz's perspective, I don't know if it really matters that much. I also, this is a bit of a spoiler, but I also believe, and I actually believe it, that the match on Friday might not be close enough for this to matter. Okay, so actually, so let's get into that a little bit now. Now that you you brought out the spoiler, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess let's talk about Djokovic a little bit. I, I mean, I mean, you watch the match against Hachinov, right? I mean, obviously he started out pretty. Hachinov started out with a with a good game plan. I actually thought, you know, came up hitting some big forehands and definitely started to go more toe to toe. Djokovic definitely was, you know, not playing his best tennis. Fair to say for the first set and second set as well. And I actually thought the second set. Neither guy played that well. Um, I thought that Hachinov dropped his level quite a bit, actually. And Djokovic didn't do enough to take advantage of it before the tiebreak. Didn't matter, though, because in the tiebreak, you know, he had four winners combined with a with a drop shot that was very successful. And then I think Hachinov made just one unforced error. And then, of course, we had that point where he had the volley. I mean, he had the swing volley from waist height and then picked the wrong side. It was kind of an odd decision. And then you know, Djokovic just passes him. But essentially, like, that was all Djokovic in tiebreaks. He's played 47 points in tiebreaks now. He's had 13 winners, zero unforced errors, and he's 5-0 and in those situations. I mean, and we, we know what he did to, to Federer, obviously, in that 2019 Wimbledon final as well. He just goes into that lockdown mode where he doesn't miss, but he's being plenty aggressive himself and just hitting to really big targets. Very controlled, I think, precise aggression and just finds that level. Because, um, you know, as he's getting older, he can't play like that all the time. I've, you know, I saw some comments being like, oh, you know, why can't he do this all the time? You know, he made it, makes it look so easy in these big moments. And I'm just like, well, because he's older now and he's has to peak, pick his moments to peak in certain spots. And he just can't, doesn't have that emotional, psychological, like physical bandwidth that he used to, you know, 10 years ago. Like, you're just going to have a lot more drop offs. It just takes an immense level of focus and concentration, I think. So for him to play his best tennis in those moments, uh, you know, it's it's really quite something because he seems to find it all, all all the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's really age. I think it's just humanly impossible to be so concentrated, so focused on every single point. Tennis matches, you know, especially in the best of five scenario, they just go on for like three hours and you basically cannot be focused for so long. If you were able to, and if you were able to play your absolute best and yeah, like just with so much patience, so much control over the course of the match on every single point, you would probably be the GOAT. But it, I mean, Djokovic might be the GOAT, you know? <laughs> so actually maybe this is not an argument. <laughs> I, I think even in his, like, you know, even in his prime, he was unable to play like this on every single point because it's just impossible to do. However, yeah, the, what he's been doing in tie breaks is just insane. And basically, I think if we're looking at like Djokovic Alcaraz as a close match right now, we're just only looking at the incredible experience that he's had with how he's been able to, to yeah, as you said, peak at the right moments. And at the same time, you know, we've seen it so many times over the course of his career that maybe with Djokovic sometimes the form maybe doesn't even matter that much because he comes into this huge um, battle against one of his biggest rivals. Of course, Alcaraz will never be like one of his biggest rivals until, unless we're talking of 2022, 2023, we are assuming that Djokovic is going to be out in like you know two, three years, uh, probably yeah. out of the sport. So he's not going to be on the Alcaraz, Djokovic, Nadal, Djokovic, Federer level in terms of the rivalry. But still, this is this is the match. This is the huge match that he has been waiting for. We have been waiting for it. And he clearly has been too, I think. I think for him also to just yeah lose to Alcaraz in Madrid and then don't get to play him for over a year. I think that's also something that he has been waiting for a lot. Uh, you know, to this day, we talk about matches like, I don't know, Federer, Sampras, Wimbledon, 2001, right? This is yeah. the sort of rivalry we're talking about. A former great against a, a future great. Uh, while both of them are still like very much uh, close to them to the, to themselves in terms of the level. You I know, think that's why this one is close. so unique. This, one, this is so unique for all those reasons, because you know they're not going to play him much. Uh -huh. know, this is, you know, they might not play okay. much after this at all, at all. And then you also know that... Uh, like, for instance, even with Sampras Federer, you mm -hmm. felt like Sampras was really mostly on a decline at that point. Whereas Djokovic, you know, he's still second best player, first best player at times the past one year. So, like, 
this is as close as you're going to get to them being at their peak powers at the same time. And so like, I don't know if 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 that's actually true that in 2001 you can you could already feel that Sampras was on a decline you know he still had not lost Wimbledon since like over in the 7 years prior right he only lost Wimbledon lost at Wimbledon once sorry 8 years prior he only yeah, lost at Wimbledon maybe. once to yeah. to Krajicek in 96 so I don't know if it was actually like this but uh, probably at the time you didn't really know how good Federer was going to be of course Whereas with Alcaraz, we kind of have the idea. Yeah. I mean, people are just going back and forth between, you know, over 10 slams, under 10 slams. No one is really thinking like whether he's going to be out of the top 10 in a couple of years. Federer was the former world number one. Federer won Orange Ball at Wimbledon. In juniors, he was or he already had a couple of great wins. He, I think, he already, yeah, he already had an ATP title as well. But I think it, it, it's definitely quite different to like when Alcaraz f- first played Djokovic. Um, however, um, you know, just maybe, maybe just coming back. Um, yeah, I, I just think that Djokovic has to come extremely focused for for this, and that's why I kind of understand that maybe the form going into this event, going into this match, isn't that important because it hasn't been that amazing. Uh, he has struggled with the wind on many occasions. You know, players like Fuchovic in the first set pushed him so. Um, so hard. I mean, Fuchovic, I don't think that the play style is really comparable. So I don't think maybe it really that matters that much. But Davidovich Fokina, he could, he should have won a set at, at the very least with how Djokovic was also breathing heavily, which um, should be, um, you know, should be a topic as well that he hasn't been at his absolute best physically, especially in the beginnings of the match against uh, Kachanov and Davidovich Fokina. He's been struggling with what exactly we don't really know, right? After the match with Davidovich Fokina, I think he said that he has something, but he doesn't want to talk about it. So again, we don't really know what it is, what it is all about. Uh, but he was definitely not like at his full uh, physical um, ability and I, I definitely was thinking that like if Davidovich Fokina takes the first set it's a really long way back for Djokovic there he looked better in this regard against Kachanov I think but th- th- there certainly were, were some shaky moments you know when when Kachanov just came out playing very differently to how he was playing Djokovic in their previous five matches so actually taking some risks hitting the forehand aggressively Completely different to what he said just two hours earlier on like a practice courts interview that I watched, that I watched where uh, he said that to beat Djokovic, you have to make him uncomfortable by making him hit a lot of balls. When I saw this, I was like, okay, so Djokovic is winning in free. Then Kachanov comes out and plays <laughs> something completely different, right? So, so I think that's how he kind of pushed him. Uh, and um, I think in both these matches, there there was some real vulnerability. But yeah, we just cannot really exclude the possibility that Djokovic is going to come so motivated, so hungry, so focused, so determined for the semifinal that it won't really matter. Because again, um, this is a guy that has been doing it over the course of his career, you know, at least over the past decade or so, just on the, so constantly that we are actually still expecting it when he's 36. And uh, yeah, for the reasons that we have sort of presented here, uh, this is also a huge match for him, I think, uh, just on a mental level. Yeah, and you know, you bring up that point that he's done this before, and I, my mind always goes back to a lot of, because we know he's never not won a, he's never won a major without dropping a, yeah, any sets. So this does like tend Enzo to Kwako, the legend. <laughs> What's that? Enzo Kwako, um taking a set of him at the Australian Open. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, Enzo Kwako, and then I think Ivan Dodic in 2011 as well, and at the Australian Open, that was oh one, yeah, it was like one one tie break that Dodic won like 12-10, and then you know otherwise he would have won, won it without dropping any sets. But but regardless, it just seems like he needs that little bit of adversity to, to sort of get himself going and that little bit of wake up call. I've heard some people say, oh, he just loses the first set on purpose to give people false hope, all that. I mean, I don't buy that at all, uh, personally, because I you know why would you do that? That's that's crazy, but. But nonetheless, um, you know, he's he's done this now like many, many, many times. 2021, since 2021. And in 2021 season alone, he dropped the first set of his matches like nine times in majors. And he pretty much always came back. And if you were to tell me if Hachinov had won that second set, I'd probably say it's a 50-50 match at that point. You know, it sounds insane. But like, that's, that's kind of how good Djokovic is at this format. Where it just, that's why I kind of, that's why I sort of took that position that like, yeah, you know, he hasn't looked as well. Like, if you just compare the two, Alcaraz has looked infinitely better. I don't think you can really make a case Yeah, that so far up in, the, in this tournament, form-wise, Djokovic has looked better. Like, no. You know, like, Alcaraz is... 
like like he, I, I think I was looking at the odds and he's definitely he's like a seventy percent favorite or something. Yeah, sixty-seven ish like, or something. Like, and yeah. I think that I think that's yeah, pretty something. accurate. Yeah, I, yeah that, that's how I would form, price I think, it as well. Yeah, I, I think so too. But I I think I would have put it maybe more like sixty forty or, you know, like fifty-seven forty-three, just something like that. Just because like intangibles, seen this like before with Djokovic. Yeah, you know? that's just based on like the like, intangibles, right? The 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 fact that people are yeah. putting it closer than sixty-seven percent is just based on like things that you cannot really objectively quantify. Like and, how many um, times have we seen, like, for example, look at like 2019 or like the big three seasons, you know, where we would just sort of compare, like, to see, like, oh, who's looked the best between Nadal and Djokovic and Federer so far in the first four rounds? And it's like, does it really matter if Nadal is winning one, one, and three, and Djokovic is winning four, five, and six? Like, it, it ended up not mattering at the end of the day. And I just feel like, like, for example, you look at that 2019 Wimbledon run, and pretty much everyone was like, oh my goodness, you know, Nadal, you know, this grass is playing a lot slower. And you know, here he is, he just, you know, destroyed Query in the quarterfinals, and you know, here's Federer, like, dropping a set to Lloyd Harris and Kei Nishikori or something, and then, you know, and then they play each other in the semis, and it's like, it's it's not really relevant at that point, because it's you know, But that's also, like, we, we are also getting in, like, to, into like, surface edges, matchup edges, right? I mean, if Federer and Nadal were playing, yeah. I don't know, for the first five matches and meeting in a semi, you still had to keep in mind, at least outside of grass, that it's still a Federer-Nadal matchup and that, that one-hander is going to be in trouble. But at the same time, when they played in Wimbledon, I remember that. Um, I, I, I don't think I was on that camp um, like that said that you know Nadal is playing so well, he has to win this match. But I remember there were a lot of people that did. And yeah. I think basically it was mo mostly like an underestimation of how good um, Federer actually still is on grass yeah. and yeah, how, how he's just going to be able to play inside the baseline, take time away. And he just did it, you know, insanely well in that final. I mean, he was he was basically never outside. <laughs> he was never outside the court. And um, I, I think it was just maybe a misconception uh, from yeah us, the general public, before the final, before the semi, rather than an actual um, like case where form didn't matter. Well, form yeah, form point. slash surface slash matchup. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, and like. You know, even in this matchup alone, like against Hachinov, like that third set that he played was the best set of tennis he's probably played all year. Like, I mean, he made one unforced error and hit 19 winners. And was just, you know, once he figured out the game plan against Hachinov, where, you know, before I thought in the, in the second set, he was throwing up a lot more of those higher loopy yeah. forehands that were kind of sitting up. And Hachinov has a very good, strong forehand from like, you know, shoulder height. So, but once Djokovic was able to kind of get it to his backhand or he was able to just redirect the ball and be very precise and change directions earlier in the rallies, then he had a lot of openings where he could use his drop shot and he would, this is, there's two things I'm really fascinated about when they play each other, Carlos and, and Novak. Mm -hmm. One is the whole, the, the drop shot and redrop shot retrieval dynamic because Djokovic has been using it quite a bit as well in his last couple of matches. And it just comes a lot more naturally for Carlos to, deploy that shot with his behind his heavy ground strokes and Djokovic doesn't really rely on that baseline power it's more baseline accuracy precision you know opening up the court and he's going to need his forehand to be absolutely firing I'm also interested in sort of the serve and return battle because I actually think this court is might be too slow for Djokovic to have a massive edge in that department um, so that's something that I would say is advantage Carlos uh and Alcaraz, that kick serve, I, I know when they played in Madrid, this kick serve really bothered Djokovic when they played on the ad side. Uh, you know, Alcaraz would, would kick it up really high to Djokovic's backhand. And sometimes Djokovic would connect well with it. Other times it was way above his strike zone, above the shoulder. And, you know, he was kind of left in a compromised position to defend the plus one, right? So I kind of think something like that is a possibility just with how slow these courts are. Maybe not necessarily with the height, but just the kick serve just doing enough damage maybe or just Alcaraz basically not being rushed by the return of serve in a way that I think, you know, I think Djokovic would knows what the game plan is in terms of like, he's probably seen those center matches, right? <laughs> that Alcaraz is, Alcaraz and him's played or maybe the Rusevori match or the Struff match. And we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, right? That you have to try to rush him on the first ball. And I think Djokovic has the game to kind of do that with his compact stroke production. I just don't know whether this surface is the best place for it. Just because it is like a lot slower this year. They are playing in the day. I guess you could say that maybe helps Djokovic because he played in the day just now and Alcaraz is going to have to go from night to day. So he might have to, um, you know, he might 
struggling initially to adjust with, the, with those conditions. But then again, you know, he's coming out of the box a lot faster in these matches than Novak is. So it's like every single thing I can say, I can come up with a counter. And so that's why this match is like, it's, it feels like it's going to be an epic. Yeah, and we still don't have like a lot of intel on it, right? They've only played once. Madrid still clay, but definitely much faster. Also in a year, so much has changed. So yeah, it, it's not an easy matchup to analyze until we see it. I kind of tend to think that we might see a very, very aggressive version of Djokovic. He cannot really quite, um, you know, match what Marosha and Rusevori or Struve did, right? That's not his game. And it's not that he should. I mean, he just has completely different assets. He's not so reliant on first strike tennis as as they are. They they basically couldn't do it any other way against Alcaraz. Um, I would I say just... he's become more reliant on it on the other surfaces. Oh, oh, definitely. Like, and also like over the course of his career, right? I mean, he just simply realized that he yeah. has to do it, and the same goes for Nadal and Federer, who basically realized that they have to shorten the points in order to survive against the younger players, also against each other, frankly. So you know, any yeah. uh, especially the serve adjustments, you know, they have helped Djokovic so much. Uh, he is playing his plus one forehand usually, at least maybe not not in this event. Uh, much more aggressively, I mean, also the net game. So I actually think we might see a very aggressive version Djokovic, of Djokovic, although that might depend on like how he's feeling physically as well and whether he actually feels that he can go toe-to-toe in like long rallies with Alcaraz for four or five hours. Uh, I cannot really tell you if he can. I think that's something that only he himself will know, probably like after the first half an hour or something. I do agree with you though that it might be a little tougher for him to yeah just stay the um stay the the side that you know is more dominant because the serve edge indeed I don't think it will matter. Against players like Davidovich Fokina, Fuchovic, it didn't really matter that Djokovic has that amazing serve these days. Fuchovic was in the night in uh, in the night session, sure. Um Davidovich Fokina in the day and you couldn't really feel the the Djokovic serve. So maybe on clay, it's just not really as much of an issue uh, in this matchup for Alcaraz. I, I'm saying that it's not as much of an issue. I mean, we haven't seen them play, but I'm assuming if they played indoors, it would be a, a big asset of Djokovic. Here, not so much. And I, I, I really cannot like say that I feel like this match is 50-50-ish. I just cannot. With the form that they've been in, I cannot do that. Although I am fully aware of like all the danger <laughs> that Djokovic can pose, not really because of being in amazing form, but mostly because he is the strongest mentally of all time, yeah. possibly. So, yeah, and uh, you know, like it feels like you know, in twenty twenty one, he was building up his game in order to match up really well against Nadal when he mm-hmm. played him in the semifinals there. And it kind of, and, and I just think like with the reps that he's gotten in the last three rounds, you mentioned the Fukino match and the physicality. There were some question marks in that as well, but when he needed the lockdown mode and when he needed to be a lot more patient and when he needed his lungs, he's kind of had them, you know? And that's where I feel like um, having played a match like that, that's probably the opponent that is the most similar to Alcaraz in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, Davidovich Fukina, just because he has like, you know, he loves to hit that drop shot. He has the, the power from the baseline and then he, he's not nearly as effective in terms of his shot selection as Alcaraz is or when to deploy it. But he, uh, but just having survived that test physically, I think was, because that match, I think was physically a lot tougher than the match he played yesterday against Hachanov, even though this one is long, the Hachanov match went longer in length. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't think physicality will be an issue coming in for both guys just because they have two, two days of rest. I think that's very valuable in a slam, especially at the end. So, um, so yeah, I think that kind of balances itself out in terms of physical and physical advantages, maybe. But we also haven't seen Djokovic play like a five-hour match in a while. So yeah. there are some question marks there, I guess you could say. I mean, again, maybe there won't be. But I am actually kind of assuming that if it went like five hours, he might be in trouble. You know, he is 36 after all. I mean, Alcaraz is 20. It is going to be a factor at some point. However, if it's like three and a half hours, yeah, perhaps it's not even a big deal. Um, also, I, I fully agree that I thought that the Davidovich-Fokina match was such a great warm-up for Djokovic. Also that um, like once he pushed through it and there were actually some issues, you know, it was still straights, but it was a very tough match. I thought this was going to make him stronger for the rest of the event. I'm not sure we have seen it yet. 
however, we might actually see the effects of it in the semi. Um, it, it wouldn't be anything, you know, impossible. And um, by the way, do we think that like this is the final? Actually, <laughs> like, is there any chance that either of these guys is losing on Sunday once once they win? Well, if they go six plus hour, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Just because, like, I, I I'm tempted to say no, just because based on what Alcaraz did at the U.S. Open, uh-huh. I just can't really put it past him to, to produce another win in the final. You know, especially against. We think it'll probably be Zverev in the final. I mean, it could be Rude, it could be Runa. But against all three of those guys, it does kind of feel like a 2021 where the first semifinal, you felt like it was going to be a little surprising if the winner of the second semifinal still ended up winning it in the end. Just because, you know, we expect the level to be in the in the first semifinal to be just so sky high that, you know, the second semifinal just might not, it, it just might not have that same energy or enthusiasm amongst both players like we kind of saw that in 2013 we saw it in 2021 just kind of a hunch but 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 obviously you can't underestimate any of those three they're basically top 10 players on the surface but no but yeah to answer your question i do think the winner of this match will win the title i'm not gonna shock anyone i I I will just you know i will just say that i agree and we can um finish this topic i think because clearly yeah i mean they are playing just um, insanely, <laughs> insanely well, and um, maybe Djokovic isn't really in that peak level yet. But if he beats Alcaraz, we are assuming that he will be. He's also that sort of player who probably won't let this sort of an opportunity go. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I can see it. However, it's not like the other half of the draw is not dangerous. And yeah, Rune like provided he would hold up physically. He would be really then he would be um um yeah Fred Zverev as well. Rude maybe not so much, I think, especially against the top guys, you know. He he hasn't really had it in the past. All right. So now it's time to make some prediction for for the match itself. I mean it's okay. Uh, I, I I'm you know, based on everything that I've said and from what I've heard you say. I still make Alcaraz a favorite, you know. It sounds like you're making him a heavier favorite than I am, but I still make him the favorite. So therefore, I, you know, I, I am gonna go stick with what I had pre-tournament because nothing has really convinced me to go either way. Obviously, we know the intangibles of Novak, and we know just um, how good he is at bringing his best tennis when he absolutely needs it. But because of because Alcaraz can match him in many areas, and just because, like, I have to put a little bit of stock in the form, just because, you know, it is just a bigger body of work and just you know it 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 does feel like Alcaraz can break some rules where maybe some other other times past even legends of the sport can't so therefore I'm going to go with uh, Alcaraz in a fourth set tie break I'm going to say like he comes out he wins the first set I'm going to I'm going to say it's be something like 6-4-3-6-7-5-7-6 something like that that that'll be my final score prediction yeah, I'm. I'm not gonna predict every single set like exactly with the with the amount of games. That's just wizardry yeah. and like that. That's impossible. <laughs> and if you actually landed, it's, it's not, not even possible. that. It's not even that you were right. If you actually landed, like you were just lucky. It's basically like yeah. going to uh, to. The, we don't know who who serves first, and yeah, like buying a lottery ticket right. basically. But um, yeah. I will have to say that on just purely on form, I am very tempted to say Alcaraz in three or like four, but very very clean. However, I will have to probably meet you there and just say that instead of four um, or like four very clean or free, I'm actually going to have to say four, but tightly contested. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to say Alcaraz in five. And the only reason why I think that Djokovic will keep it close is, again, like the intangibles. The fact that he has always delivered in such occasions and I think he can raise that level. Can he raise it to a level that's going to be high enough? I'm not sure. Yeah, but certainly we will we will analyze the match when it's when it's of over course. and we have you covered. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Iga Swiatek. Iga Swiatek is in the semifinal. She just beat Coco Goff today, six four six two. It was their seventh meeting. It's now seven and zero against Goff. Uh, and I I do think I learned a little bit more about both players watching this match a little bit. I do think Goff came up with a good game plan here, and she did actually push. Push Iga, especially in the first set. Um, I thought she was being pretty effective at pushing Iga back on her backhand corner and, you know, hitting the loopy forehand down the line that she likes to hit very well, and then getting a backhand down the line herself. I thought that was a good play. 
there were some things that she did with the height of the ball that definitely uh, made Shantek off balance, especially especially when she was deep. She used the drop shot well, which I think uh, is a is a good play. She forced Iga to come in volley. Uh, I I do think though she she just wasn't able to sustain that level in the end. And from two all, we saw a big drop off, and we saw Shantek just take advantage and kind of run away with the match as well as the last game of the first set. Um, it was kind of a similar thing and. Goff just didn't really have, she still doesn't have a weapon on the forehand. And I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. And I think she did the best that she could have possibly done with where her game's at right now. And I thought it was a good tournament for her to get to the quarters uh, and live up to her seeding and play a tighter match than we saw last year in the final. But um, still, actually, I tweeted out like the total points won in all seven of their matches. And I, I guess this is the second closest match that they played since Rome 2021. In this in the semis, but it's all kind of very similar, around forty percent total points won, um, and sometimes that's not always the best statistic to use. But I think in this case, you know, when rivalry is so one sided, where it's fourteen sets to zero, I think that's maybe a good metric to kind of judge it by. Um, but it'll be interesting to see. Shantek play Hadad Maya next because um, Hadad Maya has one win against her. It was on hard courts uh, in Toronto last year, but. I definitely think uh, this is going to be a, a different situation. It was impressive in Harad Maya in her own right to get to the semis at at, at this point. Um, do you have anything in particular that stood out to you that's impressive about Harad Maya's run, apart from her physical endurance, obviously, and her just her durability in these matches to play four of them, uh, four or three setters in a row? Yeah, um, I guess I will briefly touch on, on Shvantik Goff as well. Um, definitely not a test that I expected, but I actually think that despite the total points won and like the scoreline, it was certainly a test. I'm not sure if, if the mm-hmm. fact that Shvantik got through actually tells us something, you know, tells us that she's going to be as resilient if someone like Sabalenka, for example, in the final just pushes her. I don't think we actually learned anything about that just because of how much, you know, how the matchups differ. Uh, but yeah, um, I'm not sure who to give credit to, if it's Goff or is it, you know, Patrick Muratoglu or if it's anyone anyone else in her team. But she definitely came out came up with something new. And I appreciate it a lot. You know, she was 0-6 down, she was 0-12 down in sets. And yet she comes out and actually tries something fresh that I don't think was ever going to work as like a long-term solution. I don't think it was going to give her uh, the result that she was hoping for, the outcome. But... It was at least something. She tried something. You know, she played all these drop shots that definitely kept Shvantek of balance a little bit. She's not the best, you know, when she's moved forward into the court. Um, definitely the way she was trying to attack the second serve of Shvantek. Of course, most of these did not go right. I think in the end, actually, Shvantek won like, what, 75% of points on her second serve, which doesn't sound great. But Goff was like really trying to go for it. And she has to take risks in this matchup. Uh, And also the high balls that she was playing. This isn't really maybe something ultra relevant if we get the Shvantek-Sabalenka final that everyone is looking at. Because that's just not really how Sabalenka is going to play it, right? She's not going to take a page out of Goff's playbook. Uh, but yeah, um, certainly I, I do expect that over the years we are going to see some trouble again for Goff in the Shvantek matchup. As you said, I mean, the forehand just has no offensive potential whatsoever. And that's really the main issue with it, rather than it being inconsistent or like, yeah, anything else. It wasn't really that rushed today either, I would say. Um, maybe also mm-hmm. because Goff was defending it pretty well with all these loopier shots. However, um, yeah, however, I, I'm definitely um, quite happy that we finally got an interesting Shvantec match in this event, because so far it just hasn't been happening at all. The first four rounds, she just basically sleepwalked through. Uh, maybe in the first two, two, of course, we had some you know, tougher moments, but they weren't actually all that tough either. Um, it was mostly just her finding her range slowly. And today she actually had to problem solve a little bit. So that's perhaps good for her, even if Sabalenka or even Hadat Maya. Well, Hadat Maya might uh, actually look for some inspiration against Goff. Uh, yeah, and when it comes to Hadat Maya's run, um, I mean, it's certainly amazing for her. You know, she had never been to a Grand Slam third round, which was just insane based like on yeah. you know, looking at any other level of competition where she basically shines everything everywhere else and then never does anything at the slams. 
again, she was really close to going out. You know, she played a very long match with Diana Schneider. Then she played a very long match with Alexandrova, saving match points, if I remember correctly. Of course, yeah. against Sorry Bestormo, she was um, 6 7, law free, 15 40 down, or something like that. And today she yeah, was also very break. close. <laughs> yeah, definitely double break and I think two, um, two game points as well. And um, game points, yeah. And today she was also so close to going out to break points at five all, but she uh, also showed some sort of awareness for sure today. You know, she she just kind of realized that she has to step forward into the court. She has to look for the forehand, especially as her backhand was like for the first set and a half was just awful, and was really just hampering her chances to do anything in this match. She realized that she realized she has to like seek her forehand more aggressively she did that she won the match in the end she actually looked fresher and like mentally better composed than Jaber, which was a bit of a surprise but i do think that like her chances against Sviontek are just really going to be limited by the fact that she has played so much tennis you know she has spent on court more than double the amount of of hours that Sviontek has put in i think it's like around yeah. 12-ish, 12, 13 hours at this point for Hadat Maya. For Sviontek, after today's match, it's going to be like five and a half, I think, which is just an insane difference. And especially with her playing on Wednesday, well, both of them playing on Wednesday, of course, and just having about 24, uh, well, no, a little more than 24 hours of rest, I suppose, in Hadat Maya's case. I just don't know if she can do it, you know, if, if she can keep it anywhere close. As you said, she beat her in Toronto. I'm not uh, I'm not saying that didn't happen, but it, there were also a lot of external factors, right? First of all, the surface, much more suitable to, yeah. well, maybe not much more suitable to Hadat Maya because she plays well everywhere. However, if she, like, if we're looking at her potentially playing Sviontek and the ease with which she could attack her serve, the ease with which she could actually fight for domination over the baseline... Certainly, Clay is not the the you know the place where she wants to meet her, and also that was right after Sviontek played Warsaw on Clay, where um well that was just a ridiculous idea of course, um you know well we all know the reasons why she did it you know she wanted to help out the event, um her father is one of the organizers, however that definitely disrupted her preparations a bit. At the end, it didn't matter right she won uh, <laughs> she won U.S. Open anyway. However, Cincy, Toronto, she did not look great. A, that happened for both of our guys. They played they played That's on true. clay yeah. post Wimbledon. And and they looked kind of shaky, Toronto and Yeah, Carlos lost to Paul, right? In uh in Cincy. And yeah. who did he lose to in Canada? Or I mean, yeah, in Montreal he lost to Paul. And then in ah, Cincinnati was, he lost it, to um, Yeah, you're right. I, I swapped it, basically. Um but anyway, um yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think that that's really uh, her preparation for the North American hard courts was really disrupted last year. And yeah, just the conditions here suit her much better. And she should be able to just keep pouncing on Hadat Maya. And with the fitness uh, disadvantage, I don't see it being anywhere close. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I feel like Shvantek should have a good edge against lefties, just especially on the surface with how... Um... Yeah, how potent both of her ground strokes are and just how much of a baseline battle it'll probably become and with Haddad Maya's route to get to this semi, I definitely think that will probably be a factor that Shivantek can exploit in the rallies. Um, so, but definitely uh, it's looking like we're going to, we have a chance to see another Savalenka versus Shivantek final and we're probably not going to be speaking after the semis. So, how do you kind of see um, how do you kind of see that playing out if they were to meet this time around? Obviously, taking into account that Karolina Mukova can certainly do some damage in that semi as well. Yeah, I do think that Mukova can do some damage. Like she has both the you know the forehand shot making and also the variety to to trouble Sabalenka at least come closer than Svitolina, you know, because I think yeah she, you kind of have to be kind of quite unconventional right now to trouble Sabalenka. Sviontek, it would be a very different matchup, naturally. We've seen it twice already this year. Madrid, Stuttgart, very different conditions here, so much slower. You kind of still have to bank on Sviontek, just liking it more. However, just with the tennis that Sabanka has been playing this year as a whole, and also this week, well, this fortnight, she, uh, I cannot exclude the possibility that she wins. It would be a pretty scary one for, for Sviontek, I think. And certainly it feels like she... Well, Sabalenka at this point is the only player that could really trouble her probably 
um, Mukhova, maybe if she got into the final, you know, she would be such a wild card in the final, I think. But maybe it would also be uh, stressful for her because of that. Yeah. We've seen, um, well, I'm only making this comparison because they're both Czech, but, you know, Vondrousova re reached the, re the Ron Garros final four years yeah. ago and looked like, a, I don't know, a junior uh, in that one. So um, I don't know if that wouldn't happen to Mukhova. You know, it's it's so much pressure on yourself, especially if you're, I think, a player who maybe wasn't really um, thought of as a contender before. I mean, we thought of her as a contender to go deep, but maybe not necessarily to make the final. Also, like in the eyes of the general public, she's probably not not really like Grand Slam winning material, I suppose. So um, I, I think that Sabalenka is probably the only one that I, that I think could trouble her. On slow clay, Gada favors Fiontech. This is a, well, I don't know if it's a good matchup, but she has the edge. However, I wouldn't be certain about it. Sabalenka, by the way, like if she won, if she wins the French, she actually could win the calendar slam, which is insane to think about. But like this is yeah. the problem for her, Ron Garros. If she gets over the line, you know, Wimbledon, there are basically like two or three women that can play on clay, and the same on the men's side. Uh, sorry, on grass, and the same on the men's side, right? It's it's not different. Uh, I mean, that there just aren't that many players who have any grass court experience and. Um, you know, Sabalenka would be like one of the main favorites there for sure, if not the main one alongside Rybakina. Yeah. And it actually would be a real possibility where I think um, it, it sounds so absurd because we haven't had a situation like this on the women's side for years. Whereas like since 2005, the calendar slam was always um, in the talks on the men's side, I think. I mean, it never really came to be like other than Djokovic in 2016, which of course ended at Wimbledon with the loss to Query and also Djokovic at the US Open. Also Capriati in 2001. Yeah, but like that's a lo long while ago, right? She won, she won both events, right? Um, yeah. I mean, she won, uh, she won both events and then there was Serena, yeah. So like it, it's just so much more rare, and even though on the men's side there weren't like that many actual attempts because well Federer only won the French once, Nadal only won Australian Open once before 2022, um, so still it was like always every year this topic would be somewhere around the um, you know around us it would actually pop up at least for a moment, uh, but yeah. to think that actually Sabalenka would be like pretty reasonably uh, close to to this achievement. That would be something incredible and, and what a storyline yeah. to follow as well. But of course, yeah, she needs to beat Chiontek and it's not going to be easy. Yeah, for sure. Sabalenka's already won more matches this year than she did the entirety of <laughs> last season. So, and yeah, I mean, certainly uh, certainly, that's a match that uh, if we get Sabalenka and Chiontek and Alcaraz and Djokovic, uh, that's certainly uh, some of the best ways to finish off this tournament. But Nonetheless, I think we'll close shop there. Uh, this was a good uh, good discussion, and uh, hopefully the listeners enjoyed the preview. Um, a lot of good analysis, I think, from as much as we could possibly provide, given that we've only seen the match once. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, yeah, we certainly look forward to hearing what people think about this show. So, you know, leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify. Um, you know, tell anyone who loves tennis who is remotely heard of Alcaraz and Fiontech and maybe even not maybe they're just a, a, a casual tennis fan and they want to learn more so certainly this is uh this is always fun Damien and uh yeah we'll do this again pretty soon <laughs>